0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, all right. Good to see you guys. I'm in a good mood tonight. Anybody else just full of the joy of the Lord tonight? Awesome. Four of us. I'll take it. I will take it. God is good all the time. Amen? All the time, he's good. Well, the Lord put this word heavy on my heart, and I can't wait to deliver it to you guys. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to the book of Ephesians. That's where we've been hanging out. We are in chapter 2. and Tonight we'll be looking at verses 11 through 18 and... I would give this sermon a title. I'm calling it Let the Walls Fall Down. Let the Walls Fall Down. And we'll get into that and what that means and what that has to do with um, tonight's message. Um, But but I want you to start by by thinking about this. Because I think if there's one thing, and Maddie just mentioned it, but if there's one topic that seems super relevant to to our day and our time, I would say it has to be this idea of peace. We're looking for peace, but that's not what we're finding, is it? Look anywhere, watch the news, look around at the world. What are you going to see? You see strife, you see enmity, you see hostility, you see anger, you see hatred, you see division. And there are all of these efforts from people everywhere to, to bring peace on earth. That's what all of us want. And yet to today... It's remained unachievable. All of the attempts have failed. And and so in my preparation for this message, I came across one man's attempt to bring peace on Earth. His name was David Mixner. And this happened way back in the 80s. And at the time, this guy named David Mixner, he put together this this march, this planned march for peace. He called it the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament. Catchy title, right? great peace march for global nuclear disarmament. He had this vision. He wanted a group of thousands to take off on foot from L.A. from the courthouse there in L.A. County and walk across the country all the way to Washington, D.C. In his mind, he, he envisioned corporate sponsors donating upwards of $20 million to cover the costs of this exciting adventure, and he imagined that thousands of people would line the streets and cheer on these marchers as they walked. There would be hundreds of thousands of people waiting for them to, to welcome them into D.C., and at every Stop, there would be celebrities just kind of putting on a show and encouraging them. And the whole time they hoped to reach 65 million people with this message about global nuclear disarmament and the arms race that was going on in the 80s between America and Russia. And so that was the vision. And they set off on March 1st, 1986. But two weeks and 120 miles later, they landed in Barstow and the whole thing went kaput. <laughs> I think I know what his problem was. He shouldn't have gone through Barstow, but that's besides the point. They made it 120 miles. And at that point, by that stretch, two weeks into this march, it was supposed to take them several months, about half the, the 1,200 marchers who took off from LA had already quit. Beyond that, they, they just started to squabble, they got stuck in Barstow, and they, they even began to argue about the dress code, and they argued about who was in charge, they argued about, well, are you really marching if you're riding a bike, or if you're driving, or we're the real marchers, and so they decided to, they needed new leadership, and they, they held an election, but then they argued over who could vote and who wasn't allowed to vote. They ended up holding this election, but then it didn't matter because it, It was disavowed, it was deemed you know, uh, like it wasn't going to matter, and uh, in the end, the election was declared invalid, and by the way, the whole march, it ended with all of these people not speaking to one another. Peace is hard to come by, isn't it? Peace in our time. Peace with honor. Those were the words of British Prime Minister Sir Neville Chamberlain when he returned from a conference in Germany, 1938. He had just met with Adolf Hitler, and he felt like his efforts to to keep Hitler from launching a military campaign were successful, and so he declared that in Britain. Well, of course, we know how history played out. A year later, Adolf Hitler invaded Poland, and Britain was forced to declare war on Germany, and Chamberlain's great peace mission had failed. See, everybody wants peace. We all long for peace. We yearn for peace. We pray for peace. And it's a wonderful and lofty ideal. But it's elusive. It's slippery. It's, it's hard to come by, hard to achieve, and even harder to maintain. I think we, we all want peace, but inwardly fear that it's not even possible. I read one statistic that said out of the last 3,400 years of human history, there have only been 268 years of peace. That's incredible. Why is it so hard to come by? Well, the Bible points to an answer. It says that the manifestation of wars externally that we see all around the world is really just a reflection of what's going on inside the human heart. The Bible says you'll never know peace out there until you experience peace in here. It starts in the human heart. James, in his epistle, chapter four, verse one, he said it like this. Where do wars come from? Where does fighting among you come from? They come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members. The war is raging in here and it manifests out there. That's why there's fighting. That's why there's strife. Why, that's why there's so much division in the world. And so if we want to see peace out here, we need to deal with what's going on in here. And this is something that the politicians don't get. They, they want to point us to political answers. They want to say that if we could just get people in the right environment, the answers are political, or maybe it's, it's education. If we j- could just get the world educated, or they say if we could just you know, get the right economic policies in place, then we could bring peace on Earth. But to date, all of their efforts have failed, and, and, and we know why. Because at the root of the problem, it's, it's not a physical thing. It's, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual root. And the answer is Jesus. Somebody say amen. We're not gonna know peace on earth until the world comes to terms with Jesus, and that's what our text is all about tonight. So would you go ahead and read with me, beginning in verse 11? It says, therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility." For through him, we both now have access to the Father by one spirit. So Paul is going to use the Jews and the Gentiles and their relationship as a case study on how God can bring peace to this world. Now, you have to understand that this was a very hot topic in the first century world, especially in the early church. Today, most of us in here, we're we're Gentiles. And if you don't know what that means, it just basically means you're not Jewish. You're not a descendant of Abraham. Do we have any Jewish people in here tonight? A couple? Rad. Praise God. That's awesome. My daughter's one of them. Um, But most of you, most of us in here are Gentiles. You're not of Jewish descent. But back in the early days of the church, it was the other way around. And predominantly, the church was made up of Jewish believers. In fact, do you know what the biggest question that they were wrestling with back then was? can a Gentile actually get saved? Like, that was the question they wrestled with. And then the other hot topic that they were always wrestling with was this, does, does a Gentile need to become a Jew before they can truly be saved? And so, eventually, there was this council of Christian leaders that got together. You can read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and they collectively decided that no, a Gentile doesn't need to become Jewish in order to be saved, but that we're all saved the exact same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? And so they decided that, but there was still this this hostility between these two groups. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in Ephesians 2. And he begins by describing the former state. He he wants these Ephesian, predominantly Gentile believers to have an appreciation for what they're being grafted into, what they're being brought into. And he he begins by telling them, "This this is what you were brought out of. This is what you were saved from. And he talks about it in verses 11 and 12. And the key word that he uses in those verses to describe their situation is the word without. He tells them, you were without Christ. You were without citizenship. You were without the covenants. You were without hope and you were without God. Now that paints a pretty bleak picture, doesn't it? Now the Jews, they had all of these things. They enjoyed the covenants. They had the the law that was given to Moses by the finger of God on the tablets of stone. They had the the law, and they had the prophets that foretold of a coming Messiah who would cover their sins, and and so that that gave them a hope for the future, and they, of course, had the revelation of who God is, and they were given the scriptures, and so they had all of these advantages and all of these benefits, but the, the Gentiles didn't have any of that, and that was the story of these Ephesian believers. Paul says, you guys were in every way, shape, and form on the outside looking in. And and I want you to take note of that last phrase in verse 12 where he says that you were without God. That's a scary phrase, without God. In the Greek, it's just one word, atheos, A-T-H-E-O-S. It's, of course, where we get our English word atheist from. An atheist is someone who is without god. Now can you think of anything sadder than walking through this life without god? Whenever i think of of the atheist's plight, i think of what G.K. Chesterton, that great british uh, author had to say about atheists. He said this, "The worst moment for an atheist has to be when they feel a profound sense of gratitude in life and only to realize that they have nobody to thank, right? See a beautiful sunset, see a beautiful mountain scene, there's no one to thank. Personally, I can't think of anything worse than the thought of trying to get through this life without God. I mean, it's hard enough, isn't it? Trying to walk through life with the presence of the Holy Spirit, with the Lord. Life is hard enough with the help of other Christian believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. Trying to do it without him, without his presence, without his power, without his touch. It's not a a reality that I want to try to picture or envision. In fact, you know what hell is? Hell is a place without God. That's the definition of hell. Hell, In hell, God even removes the memory of himself from people, and so that his entire presence has been erased. And this was the state of every Gentile believer. They were without. But, I love this, in verse 13, but now, everybody say, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, we need to unpack this this thought, this idea, this concept that we have been brought near because it is absolutely revolutionary. It's radical. It's as radical today for us as it was back then for them. This was a radical concept even for the Jews. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant if you will, the only ones who could really get near the presence of the Lord were the priests. You had to be a descendant of Levi. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. You had to be a Levite. But even then, it was only one guy, the high priest, who on one day out of the year, the holiest day of the year, it's a day known as Yom Kippur. They, they simply refer to it in Israel as the day. And on this day and this day alone, the high priest, one man on behalf of the whole nation could go into the presence of the Lord. And there he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And he would spend a few minutes there in the presence of the Lord. And then he had to to leave and he would walk out of the Holy of Holies and through this really thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And then he would walk out of that into the court of the Jews And then beyond that, he would walk into the court of the women. And then beyond that, there was this really big, thick wall that separated the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile and you were a God-fearer, you had come to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then that's as close as you could get to God. You were, again, on the outside looking in buried, barricaded, and barred from the presence of the Lord by a literal, physical wall. Now, written on that wall, just in case you got any ideas and wanted to sneak in and get closer to the presence of God, written on that wall in both Greek and Latin, there was a a warning forbidding Gentiles from entering. And here's what that warning said. In fact, in 1871, they found archaeologists uncovered Uh, an inscription of this that was on the actual wall and here's what it said no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure anyone who's caught doing so will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death so they took this really seriously no gentiles allowed i need you to to grasp this 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 picture this bleak outlook In fact, there's the story that we looked at on Sunday mornings just recently where it was assumed by some Jews that Paul had snuck some Gentiles beyond that wall and the Jews just went all out and they threw this full-on riot that broke out there in the temple area and it's what ended up getting Paul arrested. And I think that just gives you a sense of how serious this was to them. But the point I'm trying to get you to see is there were all these walls, whether it was a wall or a curtain or a barrier, there were all of these things that separated the people from the presence. You could only get so close to God. But then in verse 13, Jesus, through him in Christ, we who once were far off have been brought near. And how did he do that? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one by what? He destroyed the barrier. He destroyed the barrier. I love that phrase. The dividing wall of hostility. Check this out. I asked my mom to bring this. She, I don't know if you guys can, can see that out where you are. It's, it's a little piece of concrete. And the reason I asked her to bring this is because, you want to know what this is? This is uh, a piece of the Berlin Wall. Remember the Berlin Wall it came down in, I think it was 1989. Remember that famous speech by President Reagan. I think it was Mr. Gorbachev, bring down that wall. And this is a piece of the wall. The Berlin Wall came down, opening the relationship between East and West Germany. And that that was a pretty impactful, pretty significant event in human history. But it pales in comparison to the wall that came down, that separated not only Jew from Gentile, but all of mankind from the presence of God. In in, in verse 14, Paul calls it a wall, a dividing wall of hostility. This is curious. This is interesting. You you have to understand, again, a lot of animosity going both ways. Anti-Semitism, it's alive and well in our world today. It's it's on the rise in a lot of ways. But, But it was alive and well back then as well. A lot of people hated the Jews. Why? Because they were God's chosen people, and so there were obviously spiritual and demonic roots to that. But the hate went both ways. The Jews also hated the Gentiles. In fact, religious Jews would wake up every morning, and one of the things they would pray was, God, thank you for not making me a Gentile. It was part of their daily prayer routine. Strict Jews even believed that God had no use for the Gentiles. I guess the point is, There's all this hostility, all of this animosity going both ways between Jews and Gentiles. But then Jesus comes and through his death on the cross, he tears down the wall of hostility that separates Jews and Gentiles from God, but he also brings peace to them. And we're going to talk about that. How did he do that? Well, Let's start by how he brought peace between mankind and God. He talks about it in verse 15 when he says he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So when Jesus died on the cross, the barrier was broken. And what was this barrier that we're talking about? It's not just the physical law that was represented there in the temple by this physical structure, but it's a metaphor for the wall that our sins created between us and God. You see that physical wall was just a picture of the metaphorical wall that resides in every human heart. It's why we couldn't draw near to God. Your sins are what separate you from God, and that's why they had the whole sacrificial system. It's why they had all the rules and laws and regulations. It was a way to, to breach the gap, to, to close the gap, to, to open the way into the presence of God, but it was never meant to fully accomplish this. The book of Hebrews shed some light on this. It says this, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered one time the sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Before we move on, I just have to point this out. Jesus, he makes one sacrifice. And because he is the perfect man, faultless in every way, he'd never sinned. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve. And then the Bible says, after he makes this sacrifice on the cross, he sits down at the right hand of the father. Now this is interesting because you know something, there are no seats. If you go back and look at the diagrams and if you read about what was in the Holy of Holies, as the high priest would go in and he would make sacrifices on behalf of the people, he was never to sit down. Why? Because the, the work of a priest was never done. There was always the next sacrifice to be made. But Jesus, when he offered his sacrifice, once and for all, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you know what? There actually was one seat there in the Holy of Holies. It was was above the Ark of the Covenant, this this physical representation of God's presence here on earth. And above the Ark of the Covenant, you had these two angels and their wings touched in the middle. And then above that, right there, it was called the mercy seat. And that's where Jesus sat down, in order that he might extend mercy and grace to every sinner who puts their faith in him. Therefore, the author of Hebrews goes on to say a few verses later, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, now we're talking about entering the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. There's our phrase. We have been brought near. Let us draw near with confidence. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. What the author of Hebrews and what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians is that Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we're able to draw near. Not not just some of us, not just the high priest, not just the Levites, not just the Jews, but Gentiles, women, priests, sinners, saints, all of us, both Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because the wall of hostility that separated us, our sins, that wall has been laid flat, it's been dismantled. But it goes beyond that because the wall, it was a wall of hostility. And the wall that that wall God took out, too, you see, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the Jews who were also separated from God. Right. Because the, the Gentiles, they had the wall, but the Jews had this curtain, the curtain and, and, and historians, Josephus tells us that it was several inches thick. But God dealt with that too. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he tells us that at the very moment when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out the words, it is finished, paid in full, nothing left for me to do. The work of redeeming humanity is done. It is finished. As soon as Jesus said that, at that exact moment, you know what the Bible tells us? That this veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the presence of God, that veil was ripped in half. Not from the bottom to the top, as though man had made his way to God, but from the top to the bottom, showing us that God is now accessible because of Jesus. Now, what that means for us, well, Paul points to it in verse 18 when he says, now through him, we both have access to the Father. Because of what Jesus did, we have access to the now let's let's talk about this idea of access. What does it mean that you have access to God? Well, think about it like this. In this world, the more important somebody is, the harder it is to gain access to them, right? I mean, if you're a person of influence, if you're a person with power, then then you're going to be hard to get FaceTime with. Um, as an example, like the mayor of our city. Now, if you worked some channels and you knew some people, you may be able to sit down and, and get an interview or spend a few minutes with the mayor. You're not going to get a whole lot of time, but you might be able to get a meeting with the mayor. It's a pretty important, powerful person. But, but what about the president of the United States? Now, unless you know somebody really high up on the political food chain, the chances of you getting a sit down with the president of the United States are just about zero. Why? Because they're so important. They have so much going on and we might assume that the same thing applies in our relationship with God. After all, he's the most powerful, most important person in the entire universe. He's got a lot on his plate, a lot on his to do list. And we might assume that, well, he doesn't have time for me. I can't really make an appointment with God. I'd be, I'm not that important. But the Bible tells us that through the spirit, we have access to his presence. Because why? Because we're his kids. And when you're a kid, you don't make an appointment. You don't wait in line. I love it. I'll be sitting, you know, standing down here talking with people after service or praying with people. You know what my kids do? They run right up. They start hugging my leg. They start grabbing on my, grabbing for my phone. They start talking to me, telling me about church and Sunday school and the donut. They just—they don't wait in line. Why? Because they're my kids. You get cuties when you're a kid. Why? Because you're able to say, "Dad," and we're God's kids, which gives us access to his throne any time, day or night. We can always interrupt him. He's never too busy for us. And by the way, there's no limit on the amount of time that we can spend with him. I love the way Hebrews 4 puts it. Let us with confidence draw near. There's that phrase again. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. It tells us to draw near with confidence. Now, if you did happen to get an appointment with the president or maybe like a king, the queen of England, something like that, I, I can only imagine that you're going to go into that meeting all filled with fear and trepidation. I mean, this is a very important person. But God says, no, 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 when you come into my presence, You come as a son or a daughter. You come just as you are, and you're going to receive mercy and grace. Why? Because that's what you find. It's a throne, not of of condemnation. It's a throne, not of agitation. It's a throne of grace. And there's always more grace, more grace to go around, grace to be given to us. I love that thought. But it doesn't end there. You see, we have access to God, which is beautiful. But in addition to giving us access to God, the other thing that Jesus' death on the cross does is it brings peace between people groups. In this instance, we're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. You have to understand that peace is the dominant theme in verses 14 through 18. Paul mentions it no less than four times. He is our peace, Paul says. He brought us peace. He preached peace to those who were near, that is, the Jews. They were closer in relationship to God. He preached peace to those who were far off. And we all have this peace. Where there had been hostility, Jesus replaced it with peace. Where there had been division and enmity, he brought unity. And how did he do that? It says that he created a whole new humanity. Did you see that? It's right there in verse 15, right in the middle of verse 15. He says... He created in himself one new humanity out of the two. This is why Paul could say there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but we're all in Christ. This is the new humanity. Now, by the way, when Paul uses the word new there in verse 15, it's, it's the Greek word "kainos," And it speaks of a newness that is not just new in nature, Not just new in form, but in actual substance. In other words, what he's trying to say is, if if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the change that God has brought about inside of your soul is so radical, so transformative, that it's like you're you, but you're not you. You're a new, better version of you. It's you 2.0, if you will. It would be fair to say that the person you are now is, is not the same person you were. And this is the key to peace, the peace on earth that we talked about, the peace on earth that we long to see the peace in our homes that we want to walk in the peace in our families, the peace in our relationships, the peace in our workplace, the peace in our school. This is the only way we're going to experience that peace is if we begin to walk in the newness of this humanity that God has created through his death and resurrection from the cross describing the the challenges of of walking in this new humanity. I, I found this kind of, I thought it was funny. I don't know. We'll see what you guys think. But there's this story about this missionary named John Reed. And he told this story, true story, about how hard peace is to achieve and how deeply entrenched the divisions within humanity are. He was a missionary at the time in Australia. And he was driving a bus just as a way to make a wage while he pastored on the side and and his his bus, you know, had a lot of white Australian kids and then it had a lot of aborigines and they were always fighting with one another and squabbling with one another. And they they were very segregated and he hated this. And one day, I think he just had enough. And so as he was driving them home, he heard them arguing in the back and picking on one another. And so he pulled the bus over and he walked up to one of the, the little white, bulls in the, white boys in the bus. And he said, OK, now what color are you? He said, well, I'm, I'm white. And he goes, no, you're not. Not anymore. Not on this bus. You're green. Do you understand me? And he says, OK, I'm green. Then he turns and he walks over to, to one of the aborigines. And he says, what color are you? He says, I'm, I'm black. He says, no, no, no. I only have green kids on this bus. This is a green bus. Do you understand me? Now, what color are you? He goes, okay, I'm green. And he made all the white kids say, we're green. He made all the aborigines say, we're green. And he, he marches back up to the front and he sits down and he's driving and he's kind of congratulating himself on this cool idea that he had. Well, I, I drive a green bus, you know. And he thought he did pretty well until a few minutes later as they're driving down the road, he heard one of the kids in the back shout out, okay, all the light green kids on this side of the bus, all the dark green kids on that side of the bus. (laughs) He was well-intentioned. He had the right idea, but he still couldn't pull it off. But what he was unable to do, Jesus did in creating a whole new humanity. This is what Paul had in mind when when he said this. He said, Galatians 2.20, well-known scripture. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Now it's no longer I who live, but it's it's Christ living in me. Now the life that I live in the body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love that. Paul's like, I'm still me, but I'm like, I'm I'm like not me. I'm a new me, I'm a different version of me. The illustration, the metaphor that we often use is the picture of the caterpillar and the butterfly. If you could talk to a caterpillar and be like, oh, buddy, you got no idea what's in store for you after you climb into this chrysalis. I mean, the the, the, the change, the, the transformation that occurs in that caterpillar as it emerges, as beautiful butterfly, I mean, a creature that crawls on the ground to a creature that flies through the air. It's so radical. They share the same DNA. It's the same creature, and yet it's so different that it's 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 like new and that's what paul says happens in the heart of every believer there was this guy named clement of alexandria who was one of the early church fathers and and here's what he wrote back in the second century he said we who worship god in a new way as the third race are christians the third race a whole new way to be human, and this is the only way we're ever going to be able to achieve peace on earth. You see, the, the solutions to the world's problems, they run deeper than, than the skin, the color of skin. They, they run all the way down to the core of our being, and this is why all of the politicians' efforts have failed to date, right? Because they're, they're only going skin deep with their, their solutions, and they're not addressing the heart of the issue and that's why they don't work. It's it's a heart problem. It's not an environmental issue, it's not an educational issue, it's not an economic issue, it's not a political issue. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for trying to make things better and I'm not against any of those things per se. But I'm here to tell you that that isn't going to be the thing that brings peace between people groups it's something that can only happen through the cross of Jesus Christ he's the one that bridges the gaps and creates the new humanity you see we need a new heart and that's what God gives us he removes our heart of stone and he replaces it with a fleshly heart upon which he can inscribe his will. that's why Jesus came so as we close this evening here's the thought I want to leave you with the question I want to ask to you are there any walls that need to come down in your heart, in your life tonight? See, so there's like an old saying that goes like this. Good fences make good neighbors. Anybody familiar with that saying? The idea being like, hey, as long as we can like keep our distance and there are good walls between us, then we can get along just fine. We're good at making walls, aren't we? In fact, did you know that the only man-made structure that you can see from outer space is a wall, the Great Wall of China. You can see it all the way from outer space. And the reason China built that wall is the same reason that all of civilization has built walls throughout the years to keep people out. But you know as well as I do that the biggest walls in the world aren't the ones that are built with stone or brick and mortar, but they're the ones that we build in our own minds, the the walls that we erect in our own hearts. And and why do we build these walls? Well, oftentimes if you, you dig it down into the root of it, it's because we're afraid of getting hurt. Or we build walls, we keep people out because we've experienced pain in the past and we think this is going to protect me. And so we build these walls to protect our hearts and to keep them from being broken. But in doing that, we're keeping ourselves from the love of God. We're keeping God at arm's length and we're building walls that Jesus said he came to tear down. So what are the walls that you have allowed to be erected in your own life? It it might be a wall between you and your spouse. And you know how this is, a hurtful word. Something that gets said and and you take a brick and it's like a brick gets laid, it's just one brick. You can step right over it, no big deal. It's just a little brick. But over time, we add a fence and every time there's a new offense, a new brick gets laid and over time, you can build and erect a wall that is so big and so high and so thick that you can no longer even see your spouse through this wall. Come on, don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. And you're thinking, okay, I want the wall to come down, but I don't even remember the last time we interacted in a way that was true and authentic and loving. And so, I mean, it would take me forever. It would take me, it would be easier for me to take and down and dismantle the Great Wall of China than to try to take down this wall. Well, you remember the story of Jericho, don't you? Man, those walls could be a mile high and a mile thick, but God can take down your wall. All it takes is a moment. You come to the foot of the cross. You get down on your knees. You repent of your sin. You ask for God's forgiveness. You see yourself as a sinner in need of a savior, your spouse in, as a sinner in need of a savior, and pfft, those walls come crashing down. It could be a wall between you and a friend, you and a, you and a parent. You, and, you, you might have walls in your life because you're just afraid of, of a bunch of different things. Maybe you have a wall between you and God, and God didn't do something you thought he should do. Or God allowed something that you think, why did you allow this? And so you have a wall between you and God and God saying, I was there for you the whole time. I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. My love for you is demonstrated most poignantly and powerfully at the cross. I want to take down that wall. Your wall is keeping you from love. It's keeping you from joy. It's keeping you from peace. And whatever your wall is, God wants to tear it down. Amen. So let's let those walls fall down. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together, these moments that we share. I believe they're significant, Lord. This isn't just a way to fill a time slot in the middle of our week and get through hump day and kind of make it into the back half of the week. This, this, is, this is significant. What you're doing in this room is real. And I believe you are revealing in this moment things that you want to tear down walls that we've allowed the enemy to erect in our hearts and God you're wanting to tear those things down and so we thank you that you're a God who can come in like a wrecking ball Jesus you you tore down walls everywhere you went you tore down racial walls when you sat and conversed with the woman of Samaria at the well. You tore down economic wells and walls when you, when you commune with people who were poor. You, you, you tore down all kinds of um, civil walls. And Jesus, you tore down all kinds of barriers when you hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and you loved on the disreputable people of this earth. And Jesus, I believe you want to tear down some walls tonight if you've allowed walls to be erected in your heart and you wanna be set free from that, if you wanna see those walls come down, I'm gonna ask you to do something. Would you just raise your hand up right now? I wanna pray for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the hands that are going up in here. Bless you, God. I want those of you who to raise your hand just to simply say a prayer like this and you can even repeat my words if you want. I'll give expression to what's going on in your heart. You can just say, dear God, I pray that you would take down my walls. Help me to see your love To experience it in a new way. To be set free. Replace the hostility with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.